none of us want to be alone. I don't just mean that in a loneliness kind of way. I don't just mean that in that I'm freakishly extroverted. Uh, no, I, I mean that none of us want to be abandoned. All of us in this room shudder at the thought of being cut off and isolated, especially in life's darkest hours. Where to turn to, if not to a loved one? Which raises the question, would God ever abandon you? Maybe because of the choices you've made, maybe the sins you've committed, Maybe it's evident, you think, in the suffering that you've endured. Would God himself forsake us? How steadfast is his love? To help us answer these questions, this morning we're beginning a series in the book of Ruth. So let me encourage you to turn there now. Uh, Ruth is the eighth book of the Bible. Uh, It's only four chapters long. And so I'd encourage you, there are Bibles at the table kind of out back. You can look up Ruth 1 on your phone. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be helpful if you have the passage in front of you uh, as as we walk through it. Ruth tells the story of a remarkable widow, her steadfast love, God's provision of redemption, and how God loves to do abundantly more than we can ask or even imagine. It's a story of hope, a story of romance, of suffering and loss, uncertainty and provision. Uh, It's a story ultimately about God's grace. We don't know who wrote this story, except that they must have lived after King David began ruling in Israel. Some have suggested that a woman wrote it because the two of the main characters are females, which is a distinct possibility. Uh, And so this morning we'll be in all of chapter one of the book of Ruth. We'll have three sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Hope in God's steadfast love. Hope in God's steadfast love. So look with me at Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt kindly with, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, 
And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 1 to 5, entitled Exile in Moab. In verse 1 is more than a vague, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, it's actually loaded with details that are significant. When it says, in the days when the judges ruled, we understand that this was the time period between about 1300 B.C. and 1000 B.C., uh, this is more than just a time marker. You see, the period of the judges was one of the worst and darkest blots on Israel's history. If you read the book of Judges, it is filled with sordid and wicked people. Men and women forsaking God and forsaking one another. It's a time of horrible violence, sexual abuse, idolatry, and murder. Just turn back like one page in your Bible. Look at the very last verse of the book of Judges. The very last phrase. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Can you imagine a society with no government? Imagine a society where people never express inhibitions, never say no to the flesh. We're not surprised that when there was no king, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're not surprised, therefore, when Ruth 1.1 says, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
What's the connection between the judge's ruling and a famine being in the land? Well, it wasn't a mere coincidence. Uh, it wasn't a case of the weather simply not cooperating. You know, like last year was brutally hot up here, and I'm sure all your lawns, like mine, was just brown. Uh, and this year we have flooding in our basements. Right? So, this, you know, we kind of know that weather changes. That's, that's fine. But that's not what's happening here in Ruth 1. When we learn that there's a famine in the land, we're supposed to recall Deuteronomy 28. In that all-important chapter, the Lord promised to his people that if they obeyed him, they would enjoy his blessings in his promised land. But if they disobeyed him, the curses of the covenant would come. In particular, there would be famine. There would be drought. If Israel went unrepentantly, in immorality and idolatry, the Lord, in his love, would discipline them, show them the consequences of their sin, that they might turn back to him. Uh, the point is that the drought here, the famine, was not a coincidence to the godless living at the time. Uh, while God had promised and given to Israel a land flowing with milk and honey, by their unrepentant sinning, that land became cursed and barren. This was one of the features of the Mosaic Covenant. It was specific to them then. That's not, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant today. You shouldn't read too much into the weather patterns of the day. But the point was that the famine was God's fatherly discipline to reprove and correct his wayward people. His love was evident in the famine, calling them to repent. How did this man, Elimelech, respond? Ironically, his name, Elimelech, means my God is king. How did he lead his family in responding? Well, they fled, didn't they? You see, their decision to depart to the fields of Moab was not morally neutral. Okay, It's not like if you lose your job in Boston and God opens a door in Miami, you can go to Miami. Like That's totally fine. That's not what was going on here. God had specifically called and promised to Israel this land. But instead of dealing with the root problem of sin, this family, they discounted their inheritance. Like Esau, they considered God's promised blessing and the gift of the beautiful land of no value. Think about how Boaz and so many of the other town people, they remained in Bethlehem in God's promised land. Uh, but here, Elimelech leads his family in abandoning ship, as it were, rather than acknowledging and working to repent of the sins that caused the famine. And so while it says in verse 1 that they went to sojourn in the country of Moab, uh, that word sojourn is really specific. It means to pass through, to be nomadic and temporary. Uh, notice that verse 2 concludes that Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. What began as a short-term compromise became a long-term disobedience. And of course, that's when disaster really began to strike, isn't it? In verse 3, we read of Elimelech's death, how Naomi is left. As a foreigner and now a widow, she would have been extremely vulnerable to abuse and mistreatment in that society. Uh, would she return at this point to the promised land? God's presence and God's people. Well, instead, what do the sons do? We read that they took Moabite wives. 
foreign woman, Orpah and Ruth. Under the Mosaic Covenant of that time, that was, that was not kosher. That was not okay. And, and this decision didn't seem to pay off. Because you notice in verse 4, it mentions them living there 10 years without any mention of children. Of course, that's significant because children represented the future. Uh, children was hope. Uh, babies, little ones, that tomorrow, that next year would be better than today. And yet for this family, they knew only barrenness. For Naomi and her sons and their wives, as they grew older, they would have no one to take care of them, no younger generation. Both sons and their wives remain childless. And then the final blow in verse 5. Both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Notice the repetition of that word that Naomi was left in verses 5 and 3. Verse 3 after Elimelech's death. Uh, it's, it's a visceral word. It means to communicate being isolated, uh, being a remnant, the last survivor of a group or a company that was once a great host. Naomi was alone. Much like the afflictions that Job endured, Naomi lost nearly all those beloved to her. Her companionship, her hope for the future, her people were gone. We'll see in a few moments how she responds to this suffering. But I can't help but wonder if she blamed herself. You wonder if she second-guessed the decision to flee God's presence in God's land. I can't help but think that as she reflected on her life, which seemed so bright and full of promise, well, now she saw the darker hues. And indeed, they had turned to black. She was left alone. Where would she turn to now after these bad decisions had left her in a worse spot? Friends, the stark reality is that we all make bad choices. We move to a new job in a new city and we think this will be great, but the loneliness is suffocating. We buy a fixer-upper to try to provide for our family, or we pursue a romantic relationship that seemed so promising at first, only to be left with broken dreams. Yet those are kind of just morally neutral decisions, aren't they? Perhaps most haunting of all are our sinfully bad choices, when they bear bad fruit. We gossip about a friend and lose a cherished relationship. We steal from our work and lose our jobs. We're unfaithful to a spouse, and marriage is never the same. When you are suffering, not just in general, but specifically because of the sinful choices that you have made, is there any hope? And Naomi's darkest hour, if she has forsaken God, has she also been forsaken? Let's turn to our second section in verses 6 to 18, entitled Ruth's Steadfast Love. Verse 6 is crucial. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited 
his people and given them food. Notice that just as it was the Lord who had broken their supply of food, so now it was the Lord who gave them their bread. Apparently, the people of Israel had repented, and it wasn't just that, oh, awesome, the weather turned around. No, the Lord visited his people. They got to enjoy his blessed presence again. Because they were no longer walking in sin, they now could walk with God. Verse 7 reiterates that Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are already on their way home, returning to Bethlehem and Judah. They've already begun the journey. So we're surprised when Naomi says in verse 8, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. You know, what is, what is Naomi's rationale for this sudden change of heart? I think at first we notice some godly words on her part, right? You notice she continues, May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Notice that Naomi wants Yahweh, uh, the Lord. She uses the specific covenant name of God that the Lord had given to Israel, to indicate his covenantal commitment to them, she uses that name, the Lord Yahweh, may he bless you, Orpah and Ruth. She has enough faith in God and in his power and in his grace that she knows that he can bless foreigners and she wants God to bless them. The word that ESV translates as kindly is, I gotta think about this, maybe the most significant word in the Old Testament. It shows up super often in our call to worship this morning. In the ESV, it's often translated steadfast love. There's kind of of one word. If you summarize the Old Testament, steadfast love. You can ask me what that means more afterwards. But it's often translated as committed love, loyal love. Uh, It's the word, I really emphasize the word, used to describe the commitment of God for his people. It's one of unquestioned affection and loyalty and care and provision and complete devotion. It's not like when we say, I love these shoes or I love Bedford Farms. It's the kind of love that a parent shows their children. It's the kind of love a husband shows his wife, a wife her husband. That's the kind of kindness and steadfast love that Ruth and Orpah have shown to Naomi. It is loyal and steadfast. She wants, Naomi does, the Lord to show that same kind of loyal love now to her daughters-in-law. Naomi recognizes that she's been the recipient of steadfast love, of kindness, but who does she attribute that steadfast love to? Well, not God. She says, Ruth and Orpah, she praises them for their kindness. And of course, that's good. Uh, she's, thankful for their, she's thankful for their care and help. But she mentions nothing of the Lord's care. Nothing of God's provision. Now, we'll consider this more at the end of the chapter. Now, in verses 9 and 10, Ruth and Orpah say, no way. Uh, and I don't think we should take this as like, no, I'll take the check. You don't really mean it. No, they they really mean it. I mean, they are already walking back to Judah. They're already on the way. But Naomi in verses 11 to 13 lays out the case. 
for why they should not accompany her back. And in short, it's that there's no hope for you. No future with me. I won't be able to bear you any sons for marriage. Presumably no Israelite man would take you, a foreigner, in. If you come with me, you are consigning yourself to a marriage-less and child-less existence. And so notice how verse 13 ends. Naomi declares, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I think we can take Naomi at her word that she genuinely cares for Ruth and Orpah. She is sorry for them that their prospects seem so dim. But she's also focused on herself. Uh, we began to see that in verses 8 and 9 when she prayed the Lord's blessing and steadfast love on them while noticeably absenting herself uh, from the Lord's kindness. I think here we see why. It is exceedingly bitter to me that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You see, when Naomi reflects upon her past, she doesn't see God's steadfast love. She sees God's hand heavy against her. And she's bitter about it. And thus her logic is, why would you want to associate with me? I mean, why stay with me? I'm the problem. I'm the cursed one. God has it out for me, so get away from me. Get as far away from me as you can that you might enjoy blessing. And so, right, Naomi prevails upon Orpah, but Ruth cleaved to her, verse 14 says. Verse 15, I think we see Naomi's low point in the book. Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. You see, suffering has a way of clouding our vision and obscuring right and wrong. Suffering causes us to be apathetic about the things we should love and indulge in the things that we should hate. Here, Naomi actively discourages Ruth from following the Lord. She actively discourages Ruth from identifying with the people of God, but to instead identify with foreign, idle, false gods and with God's people's enemies. Beloved, nothing should be higher in our aims than our friends and family come to know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, yet Naomi, in her suffering, has lost sight of this. Notice how Ruth responds. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to, to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I'll be buried. May Yahweh, may the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Friends, there is so much to admire in Ruth's response. Her devotion, her commitment, her love, 
Uh, here we behold depths of love matching any lover's sonnet, any Hollywood movie. Here we see depths of commitment. Notice two things about Ruth's response. Uh, first, simply the escalation of her commitment to Naomi. Right, what begins with, I'll go where you go, increases to I'll not leave you, even until death. Till death do us part. That's the second thing to notice. Uh, it's the covenantal, marriage-like commitment that Ruth makes. You see, Ruth was doing more than just waxing eloquent. She, this wasn't a stump speech. These are covenantal words. Your people are my people. Where you go and lodge, I'll go and lodge. Till death do us part. In verse 14, when it says Ruth clung to her, it's that specific word from Genesis 2.24 where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother father and uh, mother, and hold fast to his wife. That hold fast word is cleave, to, to cling to. And that's the word to describe Ruth's commitment cleaving to Naomi. She even calls upon the Lord Yahweh to be witness to this commitment. He's witness to the ceremony, as it were, to hold her accountable in making this pledge to Naomi. I, th I think this, this brings up a couple application points. Uh, first, we need to know that romantic love is not the only kind of genuine love. We live in a society obsessed with marriage and sexuality. On the one hand, marriage and sexuality are nothing, right? It's mere social construct. But on the other hand, we're told you can't be truly human. You can't be truly you if you don't express yourself in marriage and sexuality. Other friends, never believe the lie that you need to be married to experience true love and commitment and companionship. In 1 Samuel, we see the love and regard that David and Jonathan have. Uh, the Gospels record for us the love that Jesus has for John. And here we see Ruth commit herself wholeheartedly to the good of her mother-in-law. Where practically, you know, today in 2023, do we see such similar kinds of committed covenantal love? I think the answer is in church membership. Church membership. Friends, what makes Ruth's words so moving is that they are not hollow. They're not empty. She means it. She will die for Naomi if she has to. She is covenanting to walk with and be with Naomi whatever the future holds. That's basically what membership is like in a local church. It's what it should be. Historically, churches have understood that when you join a church, you are covenantally committing to the brothers and sisters there. Uh, so here at Trinity, we have a covenant, and it's simply a summary of the ways we agree to live together as a church. You know, modern society is, is just allergic to commitment. Scared of commitment, that you will miss out to something if you commit to something else. And yet, beloved, that is precisely what makes Ruth's love so attractive, so compelling. She doesn't know what the future holds. 
She doesn't know what's going to happen. Is she going to be ostracized by the Israelites? Is she going to be rejected? Will, will they starve? I mean, she has no clue. And she says, where you go, I will go. Till death do us part. This is what biblical love looks like. Members of Trinity Church of Bedford, when you joined this church, you committed to loving each other through thick and thin, while richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. Now, it's not till death do us part. Uh, we were just happy to have Bethwin and Matthew Beers move to Connecticut, happy to entrust them and vote them out and trust them to another local church. But God has so designed the local church that we aren't alone in life's deepest, darkest valleys. We have each other. Notice how Naomi had said, go back to your people and gods. But Ruth responded, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. The point is that there's a connection between God and his people. You can't get God and not get his people. They're a package deal. So Ruth provides a model for us of loving God, loving neighbor, especially as we walk through the various trials and sorrows in life. And guys, like this is, this is the love that we all need, isn't it? This is the love that we need when we're suffering. Not a sentimental or trite optimism, but a you're not getting rid of me. I am here with you to weep with you, pray for you, simply be with you you. And this is the kind of love that we need when we're sinning. You're not getting rid of me. I love you too much to let you stay in this. Come on, let's walk this road together. Brothers and sisters, in the church, let us all look to Ruth as an example of how to love one another. When we commit to the local church, we don't know what that, what that might entail. In that ways, it really is a lot like marriage. But we know that if we would have God to be our God, then his people must be our people. And so Naomi relents, and we come to our final section in verses 19 to 22, entitled, Return from Exile. After years of exile and heartbreak, and now a lengthy journey, at long last, Naomi returned to Bethlehem, this woman who was pleasant. But now in verse 20, she replies to the woman of the town. Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Here Naomi gives full vent to her bitterness. After years of sorrow, she traces her trials back to one source, the Lord. She traces her attitude, one of bitterness, to the Lord's dealings, that he has been bitter against her. It's the Lord who has taken from me and never given while Naomi has a high view of God's sovereignty, she has a low view of God's goodness. 
She rightly understands that God is in control, but she wrongly concludes that God has been harsh with her. Friend, have you ever felt like this? When you examine your broken dreams and crushed hopes, from the daily disappointments to the I didn't think it would look this way, when you stand back and take it all in, you wonder if God has it out for you. You look at the hand that you've been dealt. You know God could have changed things. He could have made things different. And he didn't. And it feels like God has singled you out for suffering and pain. How did Naomi end up in this place of despair. It's not a given that she would. You think about Ruth. She has also lost a tremendous amount. Her husband, she's been barren. Uh, She's now going to be a foreigner. Her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, her sister-in-law now. This is really, really key. For Naomi, the problem is that she has let her experiences interpret God's character instead of letting God's character interpret her experiences. Naomi's problem is that she's letting her experiences interpret God's character rather than letting God's character interpret her experiences, her past. As she surveys a frowning providence, her life, she assumes that there was a frowning God Beloved, that is a really, 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 really bad assumption. Here's what I mean. Naomi assumed that if God loved her and practiced steadfast love and kindness towards her, that her life wouldn't have ended up the way it did. And thus behind a hard providence is a hard God. But beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. It was William Cooper, an English poet in the 18th century, uh, who struggled massively with depression and attempted suicide many, many times. As he once wrote, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Christian, if you have been bought by the blood of Christ, you can be sure that behind whatever providences that seem to be frowning in your life, there is a smiling face. If God, who did not spare even his own son, His beloved son, if God did not spare him, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? Like, do you think that God loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you, but he doesn't love you enough to provide you a new job or better health? That the best explanation for your relational struggles is that he's disappointed in you and bitter towards you? Oh, beloved, it is not so. 
as a 19th century pastor, Charles Spurgeon, put it, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. It is true that so much of our lives are filled with questions and daily sufferings and emotional turmoil and broken dreams. We don't know why God allows all the pain that he does. But as we read in Romans 5, God has demonstrated his love for us and that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. We need to let the cross loom large in our lives and in our affections and thoughts. By the end of chapter 1, Naomi has suffered massively. That's no sin or reason to be embarrassed. But in her suffering, she did sin. She blamed God. She was bitter towards him. She also claimed that she returned empty even when Ruth was with her. Ruth, who is the tangible, persevering evidence of God's love. When Naomi was hopeless, how is the Lord going to provide for her? Through Ruth. Yet like Job and like so many of us, when our trials come, she questioned God. More than that, She accused God of wrongdoing. Is it ever okay then to lament? Well, even as we just sang, in dear refuge of my weary soul. How can we complain to God in a godly way? We're going to cover this more in depth tonight at 5 p.m. Let me encourage you to come back to our prayer service at Lutheran Church of the Savior. But let me just briefly suggest four steps in biblical lament. Four steps in bringing your complaints to God. Uh, Number one, go to God. Go to God in your pain. This is often the hardest step. When we suffer, we are tempted to run to other things for comfort, right? to distract us or numb us, which offer us quick fixes, which promises us total control. Oh, friends, when you are suffering, do not turn to drink or sex or work or play or gambling or shopping or entertainment or anything else which will never satisfy you, which will never provide the peace that you desire. Turn to the Lord. Second, when you go to God, bring your complaint. When your soul is in turmoil, let that be known to God. Be specific and register your affliction. List your laments and lay them out before the Lord. He is big enough to take our distress, even our anger. Our anger is never right at God, but when we are angry, we should absolutely confess that to the Lord. Bring that to him. And so third, plead his promises. Part of what makes suffering so hard for the Christian is that we know that God is a good father who delights to give good gifts to his children. He loves us. We look forward to spending an eternity with him. 
So why does he seem so remote at times? If he is good and he is God, which means he's in control, why do we suffer so much? When we've laid out our complaint to God, we must plead God's promises. We go to the scriptures, the Bible, and we look, even as Mark shared earlier, we look for specific promises that God has given us. Like, Lord, you have promised to be my shepherd, yet I feel so alone. Guide me and direct me. You say that you'll lead me in green pastures, yet I dwell in the midst of wolves. You've promised still waters, yet, Lord, I feel like I'm drowning in and over my head. Lord, deliver me for your righteousness' sake. In lament, we call on God to act according to his word, according to his promises. And so then, fourth and finally, we choose to trust. Suffering presents a dilemma for all of us. Am I going to believe my circumstances, or am I going to believe God? Uh, last night, my favorite lamp in our house fell off a nightstand, smashed to the ground. A small thing, but Kate and I were sad about it. I mean, it's our favorite lamp. $80 to fix, not the end of the world. But even then, we faced the decision. To believe that this lamp breaking proves that God doesn't love us, or to believe that God is still shepherding us, caring for us, even in this. Go to God, bring your complaint, plead his promises, choose to trust. If I were to suggest one little power boost in the Christian life, it would probably be this. What I mean is that Christian, you must learn to lament well or your heart will be weighed down by many sorrows. Biblical lament is like the pressure release valve for our souls. When we lament well, we honor God and we find hope and peace for our hearts. But when we don't lament biblically, we consign our souls to turmoil and doubt. And if you want to come back tonight at 5 p.m., we'll be speaking more about this, considering this topic. Friend, will you be alone on your darkest day? In this life, we need friends and companions who will walk with us to the end. Friends like Ruth, no matter the cost. But at the very end, on the darkest day, when death itself comes for you, you will need more than spouse-like lovers. You will need a savior. You see, Ruth is not just an example for us to follow. She's not just a manifestation of God's love to Naomi, incredible as that is. More than that, Ruth is a type of Christ. She's a pattern, an example of the type of love that the Lord Jesus Christ would show when he came to earth. He provides the steadfast covenantal love that we need. And yet we are so often like Naomi, hesitant and standoffish. We say, stay away from me, Lord. You can't handle my pains. I don't want you to endure my sorrows. Yet he draws near. We urge him, Lord, I am a cursed 
man. I, I know only death and suffering. If you stay with me, you will endure a bitter lot. Yet he replies, do not urge me to leave you or to return from rescuing you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yet we insist, return to your father's house and to your God in heaven. Where you go, I will go, he replies. Where you dwell, I shall dwell. Your people shall become my people. Lord, we cry out, if, if you come to me, it will be your undoing. Jesus speaks, where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. I will never leave you nor forsake you, even to the grave. You don't need to look out for my interests. I will die for yours. I will endure the hand of the Lord in judgment that you might know his embrace. The Almighty will testify against me that you might walk free. I will endure calamity that you might know peace. We conclude, Lord, I'm too sinful. You don't know what I've done. My love is stronger still, he replies. Not even death can separate me from you. Beloved, this is the Savior and love that you need, that only Jesus can provide. A Redeemer to love us, die for us, accompany us in the grave, and rise victorious from it. This is exactly what Jesus Christ did. He lived a perfect life of service to God and service to others. He committed no evil or sin, and yet he willingly endured the cross. He endured God's curse of judgment on that bitter tree. The hand of God smote him. He died and was buried so that you might know God's steadfast love, so that you might have your sins forgiven and know God's eternal covenantal love. If you're a Christian this morning, rejoice. Rejoice in what your Savior has done. Consider his love that will not let you go. And if you're not a Christian this morning, God is pursuing you even now. Why else would you be sitting here on a Sunday morning? except that Christ is calling you, pursuing you with an everlasting love. Why will you deny him? What greater sacrifice, what greater love are you waiting for? Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Know his love, even now. Let's pray. Lord God, we marvel that you would love sinners such as us. We pray for those suffering in this room, Lord, that you would draw near to them and comfort them, that they would know your smiling face even behind a frowning providence. God, we pray for any who do not know you. We pray that your love would be real to them, that they would trust in your Son, 
in his finished work on the cross, his victorious resurrection. Lord, we pray that we would show Ruth-like steadfast love to each other because of the great love that you have shown to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.